Hello and welcome to the Forbes India Cover Story podcast series in association with theindicast.com. I am Abhishek and joining me from Bangalore is Rohin Dharmakumar, the senior assistant editor at Forbes India. Hi, Rohin. Morning, Abhishek. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing good. And on the other line, we have the deputy editor Shishir Prasad from Mumbai. Hi, Shishir. Hey, Abhishek. I don't know if I've told you this before, but uh, they say that you know fast bowlers hunt in pairs, and we've done at least four to five podcasts in the past and. That translates four cover stories, and it's always Shishir and Rohin. Yeah, we are a symbiotic team. One of us is the uh, parasite, and one of us is the host. I won't tell you who is. I think I'm the parasite. No, I think the way it works is that uh, a lot of topics that uh, Rohin covers. I'm also interested in some small way. I've sort of done uh, written about it in the past, and I'm pretty happy to do that. So it's a collaboration, really. Right. So why don't you take us through this issue, which has keywords like you know Dalai Lama and cyber crime? I think Rohit will talk about it. He's the guy who got us into Dharamshala in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so Abhishek, essentially, what the Dalai Lama incident, which we open our story with, you know, refers to at least two distinct and fairly well managed series of hacking attacks on the Dalai Lamas and the Tibetan administration uh, computers in Dharamshala, India, and in cities around the world, London, Paris, New York, etc. We use those incidents to essentially tell our readers where cyber terrorism or cyber espionage, I'm sorry, I'll take back that word cyber terrorism, Mm -hmm. let me use cyber espionage instead, has reached. From those incidents, I mean, you can find out that, for instance, all these computers, the Dalai Lamas and his office's computers were hacked multiple times and Whatever they were communicating between themselves, the important documents were being surreptitiously monitored and sent back to servers in China. I say servers in China, I don't know if they were actually being done by the Chinese because even the researchers don't have a direct evidence of that yet. Further, upon investigation, it turns out that it was a global operation. You know, it wasn't just the Dalai Lama's computers or the Tibetan computers that were targeted, mm-hmm. but computers in many governments, private corporations, in at least 30, 40 countries around the world. It gives us an idea of the scope on which cyber espionage operates or even cyber criminals operate because even that's a possibility. And the last, I think, uh, the reason why that incident is important is because in both these incidents, India was being targeted and Indian documents and Indian officials were, had been compromised. And, and we talk about that in the story. In many ways, these incidents, you know, show us where cyber espionage is today and like how literally it can reach anyone in any corner of the world's internet. Right. Rohan, can you take us through, you know, what are some of these breaches like? Sure. Abhishek, since, you know, most of our article is focused on what happens to businesses and governments, I will talk about how do they get compromised nowadays most often because I think... Consumers, I think there's a different set of vectors on which consumers get compromised and, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later also. Now, the biggest thing that governments and businesses have to yet realize that, you know, the old model of computer security, which was about securing your network, right? So, Mm -hmm. a business would imagine that its office or its computers formed a secure, so to speak, network where it would employ some kind of a perimeter defense around this network. To guard, I mean, think of it, you know, in the old world analogy of like having a fort with all your assets and your people within it, and you guard the fort. Now, that model is pretty much broken because almost no one today, no self-respecting,
anything hacker <laughs> will try to kind of do a brute force attack on this kind of a defense system instead what's becoming much more common nowadays is to you know use trojan horses to infiltrate or to kind of compromise this network from the inside so you know let's take the example of a corporation which has like the best firewalls and the best antivirus system that money can buy now all a hacker needs to do is for instance get one of the employees within maybe even a lowly intern give him a free usb stick and let's say trade event he goes into his laptop doesn't even have to be in office he plugs it into his laptop at home right that's it boom his laptop is infected he brings his laptop back and plugs it into the company network boom the virus starts replicating it starts looking for other computers where there are weaknesses uh-huh. and from a junior employee it uses techniques to kind of spread to slightly more senior employees using their elevated privileges it tries to kind of infect people who are more senior up who have more privileges and before you know the entire organization is compromised because you know one person somewhere made a mistake and there's really no way you can guard against those kind of mistakes also it can be a usb stick infection it can be what's called a phishing attack you know there's a lot of research that shows that you are most likely to click on an email attachment if it comes from someone known to you for instance if i send you a mail with an attachment that says hey abhishek will you please offer me some advice on this story and it's an attachment a pdf attachment you're most likely to open it right so that's peer phishing somebody hacks my account and then from my account they send out an infected let's say pdf attachment to you you open it and then you're infected and then from your inbox they mail your contacts so it's a very canny combination of social understanding as well as technology as well as the fact which most of us overlook which is that pdf and adobe software today is the most common software that hackers use to attack you not microsoft microsoft for the last 2 to 3 years has really upped its ante and it's now much much more secure because they work proactively to kind of control right. its pdfs so then pdfs for instance uh, you know you get your credit card statements and the bank statements in that format in in pdfs true the one the small thing i think which people a lot of people don't do and which people find very cumbersome is that let's say you open your computer This is not so much true for corporations, by the way. But even there, it will say that the software has not been updated for like you know, last three months. And when you start updating it, it starts taking a lot of time. So you cancel the update and you just get on with life. I think in today's context, it's probably a bad idea. Even if it takes a bit of time, you know, you update it because in all probability, the manufacturer is trying to plug a security loophole, for instance, mm-hmm. which if you don't, you might leave it open for this guy to come in, right? Yeah. and one other this thing which i think cuts across both consumers and uh, working professionals is the use of weak passwords right so security professionals will always tell you that your security is as good as bad or has its weakest password mm-hmm. now the problem is most people do not i mean you know security professionals keep on telling you that use a combination of high case low case special characters have at least 12 characters but of course none of us can be bothered by remembering or writing all this stuff down right so we have like you know brilliant passwords like yahoo123 or irock or like you know your name followed by a you know zero word types or your uh, locality's name exactly worse we use the same set of passwords across different sets of services right so if i get to know one of your passwords and i just randomly try it against 10 20 services that you use there's a very good chance that i get into at least 30 40% of those services Because people keep their passwords in batches, right? When you change your password, you change it 
tend to change it across. Mm-hmm. There was this very interesting data that we had collected and didn't get to use it in the story, which essentially gave some security firm had done an analysis and they had come up with the top or the most favorite passwords. And I distinctly remember that of the top 10, the most favorite or the or the one that was used most often was 1234. <laughs> so it's that simple as that, you know, people don't bother using it. And I can imagine, you know, it's very hard to, you know, one of the worst things, for instance, happened to me in my DMAT account. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they actually prompt you very often to change it. And at some point, I just lost track of the password and I just couldn't get back into my own account. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, I had to send them a request. It, it is painful. I don't know what, I mean, Rowan, how do you can manage I, Can I offer, yeah, can I offer both of you guys as well as our listeners a tip Absolutely. to do this? Yeah, yeah, sure. There is, so, there is a software, which is an open source software, highly secure, uh, uses very good encryption. It's called Keepa, K-E-Y-P-A-S-S. Okay. Okay, so it, it's Keepa. there on Windows, it's there on Linux, it's there on Android. What you can do is you use it, it's a password safe. You right. use it to create a right. set of passwords and you store all your passwords within it. And to get into it, you need to use a fairly complex password. And then the software itself can help you generate random passwords for your services. So, for instance, I don't know what my Gmail password is because it's really long. It's about 14 characters and it's gibberish. Mm-hmm. The only way I can enter it is through keypass by copying it and entering it back into the service. So, I suspect that's the only way many of us will have to go. We will have to have passwords that are unique across sites. But you need to, Rohan, correct me if I'm wrong, so you need to be logging in from the same laptop or the computer in which you have this software, right? Uh, not really, not really. So, thanks to the benefits of modern technology and cloud computing, you can store, once you sign up for one of the online cloud storage uh, services, like for instance, Dropbox. Right. which I and Shishir used to work on this article together. The database of passwords on KeePass can be shared across devices. So once you store it on a cloud service, the same database is there on my phone, is there on my office laptop, is there on my home laptop. Right. So now no matter which computer of mine I'm accessing the net from, I have access to this database. Ah, that's interesting. Coming back, Shishir and Rohan, to the, the corporate security. Now, Shishir, this one's for you. How do you measure a, a security team's success? For example, in, in sales, you have targets, so you know whether you've met them or not. So, how do you know that you're doing a good job? So, the way, I, you know, we're talking about the stock exchanges, and typically stock exchanges have to be very, very careful about their security because, well, they don't have any cash like the bank does, right. but, you know, they have price-sensitive stuff. So, what happens with some of these guys is that they actually employ an independent agency mm-hmm. to try and create an intrusion into their system. And if they succeed, it means that probably the current security policy or the current security audit or whatever is is not being done in the right way. So that's how they measure it, really. The guys who implement the locks don't get a chance to sort of assess it themselves. You get somebody else to right. break into it, and if they are able to successfully do it, that means the guys who have put the locks there haven't done it properly. It's like accounting, you know. you got one set of accountants to sort of prepare your balance sheet. And then you've got the other guys who come and audit you, right? That's yeah. usually separate. Right. I, I think, Shishi, just continuing on that thought, there are a few companies uh, in the U.S. I guess Microsoft did it when it launched the Vista to, you know, ask X many hackers to to tell what, not, not just bugs in the system, but, you know, ways through which security can be breached. And some of them were awarded. You've saw, helped us solve this problem in real life. So here's 
a cash prize for using your hacking skills creatively to help us solve a problem. Which is not the old, uh, again, uh, you know, Rowan, uh, and Rowan will help me out here. I think that really was the old use for hackers, right? I mean, you know, the hacker term itself had a certain eliteness and an aura about it mm-hmm. because they were very smart and yet they would do these quote-unquote bad things only to make you aware. Say, look, you shouldn't leave your keys lying around. Otherwise, somebody will steal your car. Right. And you would put up your hand and say, hey, thanks for pointing out. You know, I really appreciate that help. Is that correct, Rowan? That's right. That's right, Shishu. Because I think the kind of hackers and the kind of criminal networks, and when I say hackers, I don't mean the classical sense. I mean, I mean the criminal hackers who are out there today and the criminal networks. The kind of money that any company can offer is usually only a fraction of what they can make of a vulnerability themselves. So, for instance, I think a couple of days ago, there was a news that Facebook is offering to pay hackers $40,000 for vulnerabilities that they can spot in its network, right? Now, if it's a really vulnerability, a hacker can get a much higher price for that in the hacker underground by selling it to others, mm-hmm. who then use that vulnerability exactly. to then build malware so at, and, and then the guys who build the malware sell it for like, you know, five times more. The guys who use the malware then see ten times more. So it's a pyramid of money that can be made. So instead of 40,000, you know, it's quite possible that a good vulnerability can earn the guy 400,000 if it's really good. Right. Or 100,000. So it's naive for companies today to assume that they mm-hmm. can incentivize hackers, you know, using money to reveal flaws in their system. Sure, I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't work with hackers, but I'm just saying that money may not be the thing that... No, I think there's a line which we put in the story, I, I, I can't remember whether it's still there or not, which we said that, you know, hackers like everybody else, and I'm not a leftist, but they have figured out the wonders of capitalism. For right. the same talent now, they can command a, a premium and, you know, and there is obviously bills to be paid and a lifestyle to be lived, right? So, I would tend to agree with Rowan, though... The really, really bad guys will always be a little ahead of the curve. But, you know, I think the security companies of today probably run very extensive network operating centers where they monitor what activities are happening around the world. They are pretty quick to come in and also try and quickly put a patch if there is a security breach that is found. So I think that's probably the way to go, to work with the organized guys as it were. Right. If we talk about the organized bad guys that you just mentioned, when they mm. attack the, let's say, the internet security or the websites of institutes like the government of India, for example, how do our security agencies, how do they react when a cyber crime is reported? As far as the Indian security is concerned, I think we try hard, but they are fairly secretive. There are two agencies very broadly. One is CERT, which is the emergency response team, and the other is NTR, which is more of a research organization. And I think these two act in conjunction since they are largely sort of opaque bodies. I mean, at least I have not figured out too much of how effective they've been with preventive measures. What's your doing? Most uh, government technical defense organizations are different of Indians more so. I don't think we are great proponents of, uh, you know, security through transparency, which actually is the way security is run on, in the computer world, right? You're as secure as you're transparent. From what we understand from our conversations with a bunch of security specialists and people, India doesn't rank very high up in the list of countries that can successfully deter or repel these attacks or have cutting-edge knowledge of how modern hackers operate. Those countries would be the US, Israel, UK, Russia. 
for instance. And of course, China. I mean, China is a mixed bag because China also gets compromised a lot and China also hacks quite a bit. India, unfortunately, scores poorly on both. I mean, we get hacked quite a bit right. and we don't hack as much also. Well, although you do mention that these agencies are opaque and that they are not transparent, your article does quote WikiLeaks, uh, a statement which gives an assessment of uh, India's government capabilities to, you know, repel such hacking. And it's it's not very encouraging, is it? Although it's two years old is what you say, but it's it's not that encouraging that way. We use that quote for two reasons. One, because when it comes to the government, most people, uh, including security professionals or consultants, will very rarely ever go on record or right. criticize the government, right? Because in most cases, the government is one of the biggest customers. That's one. And the other is, I think, the WikiLeaks, you know, it's not just about the fact that India is not doing that great a job, but it also points out a reason as to why that's not happening, which is interdepartmental bickering and the kind of backbiting and infighting between Indian agencies about who gets to lead and, like, you know, who gets to defend and who gets the credit, etc. I think that point is also made in the cable. Right. But, you know, considering general cyber space, cyber crime space in the world, recently Sony faced a problem when uh, many of the personal details of, I think, uh, a few million PlayStation users, they, they were hijacked. The stock price of Sony came down considerably, so it was a big news in, in the IT field in, in terms of hacking. If a company like Sony can be attacked, then is anyone really safe then? Okay, here's a big, big fallacy that we assume that big companies are extremely well secured. Ah. This is the biggest fallacy that I think most lay users or like people or even people within these companies assume, including Uh CEOs probably. (laughs) The fact is most of the biggest hacks that have happened in recent and including Sony and by the way the number of customer records that were compromised in Sony were I think between 100 and 150 million if I'm not mistaken, not a few million. So the only consistent thing across many of these and for instance let's say Another security company called RSA, which, by the way, offers two-factor authentication and very highly sophisticated authentication techniques for companies around the world. They got hacked as well, right? In most cases, security professionals told us the way they had secured themselves was so bad that a 15-year-old person who just used the internet to read up about how to spot vulnerabilities could have hacked into them. So Ah. it doesn't require an Israeli team of technical specialist to break into a Sony. In most cases, it happens because they do a very poor job of implementing patches or following, you know, recommended security advisories. And then they fail. And then what happens? I mean, and here's the funny thing, right? Which brings us to another trend. When big companies or governments get attacked and compromised, they tend to blame it on what they call advanced persistent threats or APTs. Advanced persistent threats are essentially very well-planned, very well-funded, long-term efforts to compromise your systems, often stretching six months, two years, five years, etc., you know, with governments behind them and millions of dollars in funding. For instance, the Stuxnet virus which brought down uh, Iran's nuclear program. Now, in most cases, big companies are not brought down by APTs, but the IT departments within those big companies try to pass off the compromise as pass off the blame to an APT because otherwise it looks really bad. Right. They can't say, look, we did a really shitty job of securing our servers and we got hacked and I need to lose my job. Instead, they'll say there was a foreign pass or there was a competitor who had millions of dollars in budgets and who had been stalking us for two years and we finally gave in. You know what? There's no escaping this. So that's the big fallacy I think most CEOs and as users we need to kind of get over. Right. So then to solve this, Rohan, if uh, I'm sure people would have tried this and we, we saw that in a movie called Catch Me If You Can where 
the character Frank Abagnale helps the police to uh, hunt down forged checks. He's a counterfeiter in that. I think he's an expert forger. Right, exactly. So I'm sure companies would have tried this equivalent in the hacking field where, you know, you you just buy out a gang of hackers by paying them hopefully millions of dollars because, it, like Rohin mentioned, money is not the incentive. So actually do pay them what the existing market rates are in the hacking community and hopefully help and clamp down on, on such crimes. Uh, I don't uh, think that you could do because you do certain bad things because of a certain way in which you perceive the world. Right. I don't think that changes because, you know, somebody... In that situation in the film that you mentioned, mm-hmm. the reason why that bad guy agrees to cooperate is because the FBI guy is right on his tail and the French police are outside the door and they will take him down. So he's under duress that he agrees to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in return for that immunity or the fact that he will not get arrested, he agrees to cooperate. So that is a very specific situation and I'm sure there would be situations like this where for instance, I think uh, I think on the names of in the annals of hacking, I think a guy called Kevin Mitnick, I think he was arrested many years ago. And I think later on he helped even the agencies, security agencies and the police to sort of fit with his knowledge. Right. That happens. So there are two things here, right? I think one, the point that Shishir mentioned is very important. I'll come to that. But the first point is, you know, honor among thieves. See, what happens is in the hacker underground, whenever you buy a service from someone, you have to assume as a hacker that there is no honor between hackers. If he's selling you data, he's probably stealing your data also. Oh. And when he's offering you services, you probably have to assume that he's figuring out what you're doing and maybe trying to use that into the next version of his services also, right? The other point that Fisher made was about the FBI and, you know, I think that's a very important point. I think a couple of months back, I came across this report which said that in the U.S., over 50% of the good hackers, they all report to the FBI, not for money under the threat of arrest, the point that you mm-hmm. should make. The FBI actually has information and has good information to prosecute a bunch of these guys. So they say, you know what? You don't want to go to jail, help us. You know, it's like you see in the movies. Help us nail this mm-hmm. and then like, you know, we call it quits. I don't know if that quits ever comes, but mm-hmm. in the case of WikiLeaks, for instance, if you remember, uh, the corporal who actually gave the bunch of material to Julian Assange, mm-hmm. he was actually turned in by Adrian Lamo a hacker, who was having a chat conversation with this guy, I think his name was Corporal Manning, and then Adrian Lamo gave this information to the FBI, because Adrian Lamo was a hacker who was communicating with the FBI, and right. I think who had interest to kind of give it to the FBI in the, to kind of safeguard his own skin. So that's a pretty big thing in the US. Under threat of arrest, hackers can give some information away. Well, I think that's quite a different world altogether for lay people, lay men. That makes like a good story script, doesn't it? All of these rolled into one. And in the end, the biggest challenge for the security agencies is just to keep the house running. Yeah. In that way, the job of the security agencies is a bit like, you know, in newspapers, there are people who cover the crime beat, the crime reporters typically. Right. And it's a thankless job because if you cover all the crime and put it out in the newspapers, people think, oh, okay, that's just like business TV. But if you miss something, right. you get knocked for it. So that's pretty much the world of the security agency today. Because nobody will notice it if nothing happens. But the day something happens, you'll get a lot of flack for it. So it's, it's a tough job. I think on that note, Rohin and Shishir, thank you so much for this early in the morning again. Thanks, Abhishek. Yes. Thank you, Abhishek. Thanks, Rohin. And again, for all you guys listening out there, you can get this podcast on uh, business.in.com. That's the Forbes India's homepage, the website. 
as well as theindicast.com and also on iTunes. Keep listening, keep commenting. We love your comments and we do reply to them. And to subscribe to the magazine, what you do is message Forbes to 51818. That's Forbes to 51818. Thanks again, Jishir Rohan. Have a nice day. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.